are listening to the Thornapple Valley Church Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Our hope is for you to be encouraged and to connect with God during this message. If you'd like to know more about Thornapple Valley Church, visit tvcweb.com. Well, good morning again. Hey, I think Brian was trying to tell us something uh, through that song, so let's all pray for Brian here real quick. Um, <laughs> But hey, one more time, good morning to those of you who are joining us online in Delton and Middleville. You know, today we're going to talk about a subject that we all deal with because whether we want to admit it or not, we all have these parts of our lives, these areas of our lives that we feel like we have a hard time controlling. But before we do that, do you guys mind if we take a moment and have a moment of silence for my Michigan State Spartans? That was a tough one there. Really a tough one there. So the only thing I want to say about that is winning is not everything. And Mel Tucker, if you're watching, I'm praying for you, brother. But anyway, um, let's jump into what we're going to talk about today. You know, if I were to say happy Halloween, there would be two responses. Some of you would say, yes, you love Halloween. You love getting dressed up. You love taking your kids out for candy. It's the one holiday. It's the one time of year where you can ask strangers for candy and not end up on Dateline. So it's a really fun holiday for some of us. But if I were to say Halloween to some of you, you would think to yourself, I don't like Halloween. It makes you feel uneasy. It makes you feel uncomfortable. And if you're in that boat, I can relate to you because I grew up in a family where my parents never celebrated Halloween, didn't really acknowledge it. So for the majority of my life, I mostly ignored it. Now, when I came of age and I got married and I had my own kids, I never had a problem with my kids getting dressed up or going trick-or-treating. But because my parents never uh, enjoyed it, allowed it, I just never did it. But I remember I'm early in my marriage, and me and my wife, we had two young kids at the time, and my wife grew up up here, and so she loved going trick-or-treating and getting dressed up. And so one day she says, hey, Keith, let's all the entire family get dressed up. And I told her, I said, hey, listen, sweetheart, never did that when when I was a kid. I don't do that now. And now that I'm a grown man... I don't get dressed up. I go to the gym and I get bowed up. Can I get an amen from the men in the room? <laughs> but, um, but she looked at me and she said, well, listen, if I can push two kids out of my body, you can get dressed up for Halloween. <laughs> so I'm not sure why you guys are clapping for that. <laughs> but this is the one and only time that me and my family dressed up for Halloween. Here's a picture of our family. Yep. We dressed up as the Incredibles, and it's funny how fast time flies. So my uh, daughter in that picture, she's 15 now, and so it's just kind of crazy how time flies by. One and only time that I did it, here's another picture of a family who dressed up, and they dressed up as monsters. But here's the point I want to make about that, and that's really the subject of where I'm going with this. Because my family dressed up as the Incredibles doesn't make us incredible. That other family that dressed up as monsters does not make them monsters. There's something more to the story. So today I want to talk about a phrase that if you grew up around church, you've heard the same. Even if you haven't grown up around church, you're probably familiar with this little saying that goes like this, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. Now, there's a lot of phrases out there that that people say that are congruent with the Bible, but it's not actually in the Bible. This is one of those sayings that has some Bible facts, some Bible basis because of what Scripture says. 
If you got a Bible, I'm going to start off in Genesis chapter 1, and then I'm going to go to Romans chapter 5. In between Genesis chapter 1 and Romans chapter 5, a lot of important theological things happen in the Scripture. Now, while you're getting to Genesis chapter 1, let me just remind you how the book of Genesis begins. It starts off in Genesis 1, 1 like this, in the beginning, God. Before there was a sun, a moon, a star, before there was lions, tigers, and bears, there was God. God was by himself. He was in perfect unity and community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And out of that perfect community and that unity, he wanted to create a world. If you were to study the creation account, most scholars would say that the first three days God is forming the environment for life to exist. The next three days he's filling the environment with life. He does everything. He creates stars. He creates trees. He creates everything. But he gets to the final act of creation. You and I, here's what the scripture says in verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. There is God's three in one. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. In our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and the livestock of the ground, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase the number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So you say, okay, where, where does that statement come from? Is there any Bible to back it up? And let me just tell you why there's Bible to back it up. It's because you and I have never locked eyes with another human being who was not made in the image of God. No matter how many times you and I have messed up, no matter how many times we, we have been dysfunctional in our relationships, we are made in the image of God. In the Latin, here's how they say it. They call this the Imago Dei, the Imago Dei. And, and when it speaks of the image of God, that Latin phrase talks about the uniqueness that humanity displays God's image. All other creation displays God's glory, but you and I have the unique touch of God. So if you want to know what the image of God looks like, you just got to look at these three verses. We see five characteristics of the image of God that every human being has. And the first one we see is ruling. God said, let them rule. You and I were not meant to be ruled by our emotions, our appetites, our impulses. We were made to have self-control. But not control over another human being, over the fishes, sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves along the ground. And in to have control over ourselves, not other people. But then the second characteristics we see of God's likeness, God's, God's image, is that we were blessed, or you could say blessing. He said, let them rule, and it says, God blessed them. There was something unique about when God got to the final part of his creation, he looked at the man and the woman, and he said, you are blessed. 17th century Bible commentator Matthew Henry describes that the blessing of God means that you and I are made of ground stuff, I'm paraphrasing, and God stuff. So we're made from the ground. Our body will one day return to dust and ashes, and so we're made from the ground, but we're also made of something that's immaterial, God stuff. 
that you're more than a body. You have a spirit. You have a soul. You are made in the image of God. You are blessed. Also, in the original language, one of the ways to translate that word blessed is happy. Now, you might not hear this a lot in church, but God wants you to be happy. He really does. But don't misunderstand what I mean when I say that God wants you to be happy. I'm not telling God wants you to do anything with anybody in any way you want to do it. But what I'm telling you is that God created us with emotions to have joy, to have peace. But then the, the next word that describes the image of God that we're created in is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. A lot of Bible scholars call this the creation mandate that we, that we were meant to be fruitful, to be productive with our lives. That's why there's something that comes alive in us when you and I find the purpose, the reason that we are put here. And when we're doing what we're supposed to do, when we're productive in our purpose, we have a sense of satisfaction. You know, I, I told you earlier, in a moment, we're going to baptize a whole bunch of people. As I drove in, as I walked in, I saw all the kids with the candy, and, and I saw everybody with their cars decorated, and, and I saw one with Michigan State, and I said, God bless them. And then I saw one with U of M, and I said, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But as I'm walking around and I'm seeing all of these different things, I just thought, wow, I love it. And after today, I'm going to be tired, but, but, but I feel like I'm being fruitful, I'm being productive, because that's who God made me to be. And when you find the purpose of God for your life, you'll live in that too. So ruling, secondly, blessing, fruitfulness, and then the next word is filling. God said, fill the earth. We have the ability to become more than what we started with. And then the last word is to subdue, to subdue. This is the image of God that we were all created with. Every single person you run into, whether you agree with them or not, no matter what issues they have or not, they were created in the image of God. But then something happened. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything is as God desired it to be. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes in. He lies and he deceives Adam and Eve. And interesting enough, when they follow the deception of the evil one, they become like the one who deceives him. Remember, God says, I give you authority to rule over all the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and everything that moves along the ground. And then the serpent shows up, disguising like a serpent, something that moves along the ground. And instead of taking authority, they listen. And through giving in to deception, they walk into the doorway of destruction. For years, humanity was separated from God. God longed to be in relationship. He longed that, that we would connect with them, and, and they built a tabernacle, and there were laws. But every time, we kept falling short. And then Jesus came. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, Roman des describes the work of Jesus. In Romans chapter 5... Verse 8, it says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While you and I were disappointed, while you and I were dysfunctional, while we were confused, while we were lonely and lustful and broken, Christ died for us. Not for his sin, but for my sin. 
for the times that I fall short. You know, there's an old English prayer that says, God, forgive us for the things that we have done and the things that we should have done. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. God demonstrated his own love for us. You know, in every relationship that moves from platonic to romantic, there is a transition moment where somebody says, I love you first. So I want, to, I want you to go back for your married folks to your dating uh, time, and, and, you know, you guys are hanging out and having fun and doing your thing. And then there comes a moment where he starts to feel like it's time to, to go to the next level, to get out of the friend zone. And so he starts to blush. His heart is beating fast. Now, if I was blushing, you guys wouldn't know it, but sometimes it happens. But anyway, the point of the matter is he's feeling it. And then all of a sudden he says, I love you. And when he gets it out, all of a sudden there's a sense inside of you, you go, I love you too. Because he went first. What, what the Bible is saying is God is the one who went first. He was the one that says, I, you don't have to clean up your mess before you come to me. I love you right where you are. But then you get to verse 9. And in verse 9, we're going to see the contrast of God. And by the way, if you're going to read the Bible and understand the Bible, you have to understand the contrast of God. Or it'll never make sense to you because God is a lot of things. Look at this in verse 9. It says, since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, this is the confusing part of this because I thought you just said, and I thought you just read, that God is unconditional love. Is God unconditional love? Yes. Does God get angry? Yes. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And let me tell you why he hates the sin, why he hates my sin. It's because he hates what it does to me. He hates the shame, the brokenness, the, the way it distorts my relationship. God hates sin. He gets angry about it. So much that we have to be saved from the very one who loves us most. So what is the point then? If we're made in the image of God and sins come in the picture and Jesus Christ has died for it, what should we do with that? Here's how Paul's going to explain it in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 22 and 23. Since for you were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Now, that's a thought. That there's stuff that I want to do that I do do that it's deceitful. Basically, what Paul is saying is that though sin might come natural to us, it was not the way God designed it. That's not the way God designed us to live. He goes on to say this, but be made new in the attitudes of your mind and put on the new self which was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I love that. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down this statement. What, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the sinful you is not really you. The sinful you. 
the sinful me, the, the times that, that, that I have those moments where I blow up, where I, I act like a monster, those times where, where I do things that, that in the moment I think to myself, I regret this. What Paul's saying, that's just a costume. That's not who you were truly designed to be. Underneath the rubble of all of our sin, we were made to rule. We were made to live in the blessing of God. We were made to, to walk in God's fruitfulness. We were made for more. Take off that old way of life. Because that's not how God designed us to be. You know, the way Jesus dealt with sinners oftentimes is very different than the way that we deal with sinners. In Luke chapter 7, we see one of those accounts. Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house. Now, the Pharisees were the richest and the most moral people. So there were some Pharisees who did not like Jesus, and there were some who loved him. And they loved him because it was kind of a status thing. If he's good and righteous and moral, then having relationship with him is like me being good, righteous, and moral. Here's what we read in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, you can just follow along on the screen. Jesus goes to have dinner at this Pharisee's house. Verse 36, he says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, at the Pharisee's house, he reclined at the table. Now, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she began to wipe them with her hair and kiss them and pour perfume on them. Now, let me set up the story. So, the way tables were back in the first century is very different than this table or the table that most of us eat at. Jesus wasn't sitting at a table like this. He would have actually been sitting at a table where it would have been the same height, it would have been lower, and his feet would have been back this way, so he would have been reclining kind of like this eating. And there comes a lady who's got a reputation. She lived the sinful life. Which, as I even read that, I'm like, what does that mean? We've all lived a sinful life. But she hears about this guy named Jesus. He teaches, blessed are the poor in spirit. He is loving. He is kind. And so she shows up at this, you know, dinner banquet that she wasn't even invited to. And I imagine she's there. She wants to just talk to Jesus. And she sees him there. And all of a sudden, soon as she sees him, she just starts to weep. Because here is purity, holiness, righteousness. Here is her. She feels shame and brokenness. And, and, and she does something that, that just is flat out uncomfortable for everybody. While she's weeping, she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. I imagine as she's doing this, she is wanting Jesus to do the very thing she is doing for his feet to her soul. She wants to be clean. And she doesn't know the right protocol, how you're supposed to do it. She just knows she wants to be clean. I have to tell you, you know, as a pastor, at this point I've been doing this almost 25 years, and 
I love when people show up at church and they don't know church protocol. I remember one time I was in uh, Southern California and we were doing our deal and, and, and there's this guy who walks in off the street. And, and right when one of the other pastors was speaking, he just walks right forward and he just starts to, in a loud, disruptive way, he says, I need Jesus. I, I want to repent of my sin and my addiction and my pain. I want Jesus. And I have to tell you, on one hand, it was super cool. And on another hand, it was kind of like, hey, could you wait for a few minutes? We're not finished with the song yet. Then you can come up and do that. That's what we feel, right? Here, here's what's going to happen next. In verse 39, it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, I want you to notice that, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is. And then on the count of three, I want everybody to read these last four words with me. One, two, three. She is a sinner. Like he's not. <laughs> if he's a prophet, if he really is that Messiah, that one who has come, he would know that this is a no sinners invited party. How dare she show up at our party? But here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to prove his prophetic nature, not in what the religious people think he should do, but what he actually does do. Look at what he does here. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither had the money to pay them back, paid him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? Now, I want you to notice that this guy does not tell Jesus what he's thinking. He just thinks it, and Jesus knows what he's thinking. So instead of proving his prophetic nature and how he was supposed to act according to the religiously, he proves it by saying, Simon, I'm, I'm, I got a little, little story for you. There's one guy who owes a guy... 500 denarii. Now, a denarii was a day's wages, so this would have been something like he owes this guy over a year's worth of money. He's got himself in such a hole that he didn't ever feel like he could repay it. Then there's a guy who owes the same guy about a month and a half worth of wages. This master, this money lender is going to forgive both of them. And then Jesus is going to ask the question, which one would love him more? Here's what I would imagine, and here's what Simon knows, and I didn't read the rest of it to you. He's going to say, the one who's going to love him most is the one who was forgiven the most. Because this is how you respond when you're forgiven a lot. If you've been in such a hole, you could never repay it back. Every day you go to work, but you're not working for yourself. You're working because you're overwhelmed with debt. If you were to get in a note in the mail forgiven, you would think to yourself, this can't be real. I will forever remember this act of love and generosity you've given to me. But the guy who only owes him about a month and a half, he would think to himself, you know, that's nice. That's nice. But I could have paid him back because I wasn't really behind. I just, you know, I was using other people's money to make money. But this guy here, who was forgiven a lot, would have loved a lot. 
And so Jesus proves his prophetic authority in the way that he deals with sinners according to the way God deals with sinners. Here's what Jesus is going to do for this lady. I, I didn't have you read it, but if you drop down to verse 48, Jesus is going to say these words to this lady. Your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. And, and you got to imagine that this woman is, is, is crying and wiping his feet with her tears, feeling like she could never repay this debt of sin to God. When she hears the words, your sins are forgiven, all of a sudden she feels relief. I don't have to live my life in shame. I don't have to live my life thinking that I will never measure up because I have been forgiven. The first thing Jesus is going to offer this lady is forgiveness from her past. But here's the second thing he's going to do. If you drop down to verse 50, he's going to say these words, go in peace. Go in peace. You know, oftentimes people have talked about making peace with God. But honestly, making peace with God is not something we do to God. It's something God did for us. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. And when we accept what he did for us on the cross, now we can live in peace because we could never repay that debt of sin. And I imagine when that woman walks into that room uninvited, she felt like a monster. When she walked out of that room having been forgiven and received the peace of God, she was reminded she was made in the image of God. You know, as I bring this message to a close, we got some people here who that's what they're going to testify to by being baptized. That at one point, they were living like a monster. They were making bad choices and some big, some little. But at, at some moment, they decided to follow Jesus, to surrender their lives to him. And what baptism is going to symbolize is that they're going to bury that old life. As Paul said, they're taking off the old self and they're rising to a new life in Christ. Maybe you're in here and you need to start a relationship with Jesus. If you need to do that, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And so I'd like to invite everybody to pray with me. So just bow your head and close your eyes. I want to embarrass you or make you raise your hand, but I'd like to invite you to pray this prayer with me in your heart. Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. So I ask you to forgive me of my sins, and I ask you to come into my heart through your Holy Spirit. I submit to your leadership and your lordship. Help me to follow you through your power, not my own. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we uh, celebrate with the people who made a decision to follow Jesus? for listening to the Thornapple Valley Church podcast. If you found this message encouraging, we invite you to share it. For more information, visit tbcweb.com.